Hi, I'm Derek Jensen. This is Resistance Radio on the Progressive Radio Network. My guest today is Sarah Bowen. She's an animal chaplain and co-founder of Compassion Consortium, the first interfaith, interspiritual, and interspecies community for people who care about and advocate for animals on the planet, where she leads the animal chaplaincy training programs. She companions animals through death, creates sacred memorial rituals, counsels humans grieving animal loss, and advocates for exploited and endangered species in both religious and secular contexts. She's a columnist on animal-human relations for Spirituality and Health magazine, and her work has been featured at the United Nations World Interfaith Harmony Week and the Compassion Arts Festival, as well as in a wide range of spirituality media. Her latest book is Sacred Sendoffs from Monkfish Publishing. It's a really good book, by the way. So first off, thank you for your work in the world, and second, thank you for being on the program. My pleasure, Derek. Thanks for having me. So let's start. People may not have heard of animal chaplaincy. Can you talk about that? I sure can. It's funny. I I can tell often when people's eyes kind of pause for just a second, they say, animal what? Or perhaps they say, chaplain what? And they think of Father Mulcahy from MASH or, you know, some kind of experience that they've had in a a disaster. And, you know, it's good to start with what a chaplain is. And a chaplain is someone who supports others often through difficult things, right? We think of needing a chaplain when there might be um, illness or there might be death or there might be a catastrophe. And an animal chaplain is someone who's really looking at issues around other species other than humans. So that can be anything from trying to create situations where animals can thrive, uh, looking at places where they might be suffering and seeing what kind of adjustments we can make, to what you might expect, which is, hey, I just lost my dog and I feel terrible. <laughs> what can I do? So, you know, there's some very um, kind of wide ways that we come to this work. And there are some very personal ways that I come to this work. But for a tagline, I'll give you this. As an animal chaplain, I support all sentient beings, regardless of their species or their belief system. So when when you oh okay i'm gonna hold off on another question and go with so how did you become and how how did this happen how did you take this path sure you know i like to think i started this when i was about six um i grew up as a preacher's kid and so i was constantly dragged you know on the way to swim practice or on the way to piano lessons you know my father would say we have to stop at the hospital we have to stop at the funeral home or we have to stop at the church And so I got kind of dragged into a lot of places where, you know, people were caring for for others, in in this case, humans. And so my language around that was very comfortable, and I didn't see these things as necessarily, necessarily things to run away from. But I also realized that people weren't so great at taking care of other species. So I'd be walking home from school one day. And this happened frequently, uh, but walking home from school and I'd see, you know, kind of some little smashed up chipmunk or squirrel who'd had a, oh, a bad interaction with an automobile and my heart would break. So I'd pick him up, you know, using a stick, you know, because I had been lectured on germs and these type of things. And I would put him in my lunchbox and I would take him home and I would bury him. You know, so picture me, I'm age six, age seven, and there I'm in my, you know, my mother's rose bushes, you know, burying anything I can find that's passed on. And so, you know, I had a lot of curiosity about that, too. So I kind of dig them up every once in a while and see what was going on, because I was very interested in science. You know, I was a preacher's kid, but I was very interested in 
you know, what what's going on under there? What's what's happening? So ad, animal advocacy became a, a part of my life, uh, both, you know, the live ones as well, of course, uh, as well as helping preserve habitats and getting into interesting human wildlife conflicts and things like that. And I didn't really intend to become uh, someone who was involved in the, the religious or the spiritual side. But it it snuck up on me, and I ended up uh, attending a couple of seminaries and also doing some study in anthrozoology and and different types of modalities. Uh, and that kind of gave me the foundation that I come from now, which is looking at, you know, how how can we help people um, feel better and navigate issues around animals, and how can we help the animals themselves when they're suffering? Does that does that kind of answer where you're going? Yeah, yeah. And um I'm going to ask a really unfair question. Oh, I love it. Go for it. And go well, good. And I I just I want you to know beforehand that that I'm recognizing this question is unfair, which is so when you are when I think of a chaplain in a in a war, you know, you, you see sure. you see yep. in a, in a war movie mm-hmm. that, you know, what the chaplain is doing is is generally it seems to me holding the hand of somebody dying. And so when you, when you're talking about this, are you like, if would somebody come to you whose, whose pet companion, animal, whose dog or cat is, or turtle is, is dying. So when you, when you go, are you, is your primary focus? Here's the unfair part. Is your primary focus, um, helping the animal pass over or is your primary focus helping the human deal with the animal passing over or or how do you how do you put both of those at the same time it's a great great question it's not unfair at all um you know i think that you're it's two parts i think that are in there the first about you know we're we're used to seeing chaplains in the movie uh you know at at the very end point and and that is one thing that chaplains do uh they also you know, uh, function as you look at a lot of universities have chaplains now for people when they have issues and they want to talk to someone and they're not part of an organized religion, but they'd like to get some advice and they don't want to see a therapist and it might be of kind of a, a spiritual or existential or transcendental nature. Uh, Harvard now has, I believe, 12 chaplains, including an atheist. Uh, NASCAR has chaplains. Hollywood has chaplains. Uh, Tyson Chicken even has chaplains. And that <laughs> that's somewhere we could go that would be interesting talking about that. Um, but, you know, there are chaplains who show up in all these different places. Now, to get to the second part of your question is, yes, I frequently get people who say uh, either I have an animal in hospice, and that could be a cat, a dog, a turtle. It could be a horse. It could be a cow on an animal sanctuary. Uh, you know, we have an animal who has a terminal illness or is ill and is going to die. And we'd like some help bringing them comfort. Now, what we know is that it's not just about um, some sort of religious piece of kind of passing over or blessing someone or, or that kind of thing. I don't really get involved in those kind of questions. But it's more about giving comfort to someone as they're transitioning out of life. So that's sitting with someone, um, moderating your breathing being in pre- what we call being in presence. So being, you know, this kind of calming presence in a space that's likely really stressed out and sad and frenetic and frantic. And that can 
help both the humans that are around and the animals. Because what we know from scientific studies is that we will, we will find the balance of other people near us who are calmer. That will help bring us down. It will help us stop going offline with our emotions. So it's about that being a, a support at that time. So that can be a support both to the animal and a support to the humans. Now, after the animal's gone, right? Uh, traditionally humans feel pretty terrible. There's, uh, there's one survey study that tells us that 93% of people who experience the loss of an animal companion have a disruption in their life. Uh, 50% of them can reduce their social activities. 45% had job related difficulties. We find loss of motivation and increased stress and anxiety and worry and depression. And there's another study uh, that tells us that this can last with kids up to three years. So, yeah, there's some work to do on the other end, too, with helping humans with um, what they're experiencing. And just to wrap it up, you know, we also find that with people who are in the animal care community. Veterinarians and vet techs have really, really high rates of suicidal ideation and depression and anxiety. So I work with a lot of them around their work. And we also find people who are conservationists or people who are uh, working out in the field with animals don't really have an outlet for dealing with loss. Uh, when, you know, a project doesn't go the way that you hope, when a uh, species goes extinct, uh, when animals are suffering in captivity, all of those different ways. So I know I gave you a really big answer, Derek. I, I took that and I kind of took it in a couple directions. Oh, that's great. Help? No, no, that's great. Thank you for that. And I'm, I'm thinking one of the things you were saying about finding the calm. I had a cat, uh, several years ago who I'd gotten from a, a rescue and when she was already really old and then she's doing fine. She's doing great. And then, um, she had an adverse reaction to some medicine that caused these horrible sores mm. and, um, you know, took her to the vet and the vet, the sores were getting worse and worse. And so it was time to, you know, I don't know to euthanize her to, I don't, I don't know what euphemism we're supposed to use. And, um, and she asked if I wanted to be in the room. It's like, of course. And the point is that, um, the cat, even though she was in terrible pain from all these sores, as soon as she saw me, she started purring and she was purring and she died. Yeah. And it's beautiful that you were able to be there. Uh, we find that a lot of people can't. And the reason they can't is they fear that they'll become overwhelmed. And yet in doing that, then the animal's alone, right? And, and scared and doesn't have your support and your comfort. So I always urge people, if you can be there for them in that moment, please do. It's awesome. It's really helpful for them. Also, if you feel like you can't do it alone and you want some help, that's when you call an animal chaplain to come in with you or you call a friend or you call someone who gets it and, you know, isn't in the, oh, hey, just go get another cat phase, right? Someone who understands loss and grief and bereavement and take them with you because it really, really does matter. How, um, I forgot what I was going to ask. Um, <laughs> That's okay. I, you know what? I And I, I can tip on that euthanasia term for a second, too. That was sure, part of please. your question that I didn't answer. You know, it's a Greek term. That's where we get it. And it means a good death. And we use it now in a broader way that's kind of unfair. 
So, for example, when COVID hit and we had a lot of situations where people went home to to work and animals were left in places where they couldn't be cared for or there were concerns about COVID and animals, um, mass amounts of animals were killed. Right. And sometimes in the media that comes up and it says uh, they were euthanized. Well, that's not really the way that we use that term. Um, euthanize is meant to be what we're doing is preferable to um, the pain and the suffering that they're having. And that's why we do it. Now, some countries, this is kind of fascinating, um, some countries allow people to just decide when an animal you know, should go or not based on whatever they choose. The U.S. is one of those. Uh, animals are considered property here in the U.S., whether they're property of you in your home or they're property of the government in a national park. Uh, all animals are considered property. Uh, in other countries, they've made the choice that uh, you can't do what's called convenience euthanasia, which means you can't walk into a vet's office and say, hey, this dog barks too much. Put her down. In the U.S., you can. So there's some really kind of interesting things in here from a, um, you know, from a beyond the, the grief and the bereavement and the loss. There's some things to think about, about the way that humans relate to animals, too. So you using the term euthanasia for your cat sounds exactly like the right term. However, somebody who's putting down, you know, a couple million animals in a factory farm calling it euthanasia, not so much. Does that help? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And this, this, this really brings us to, for me, I think one of the core issues, which is that, um, when I wrote my book, A Language Older Than Words, originally it was supposed to be this really happy book about interspecies communication and how, um, how, how many of us do have communication with non-humans. It's just we don't talk about it in the public because it's so embarrassing. But we, you know, even on the most basic level, the dog food dish is empty. So the dog looks at you, looks at the dish, looks at you, looks at the dish. There's a communication just happened. And and then on more, you know, other levels too. But I, I realized pretty quickly that two things. One is that to write a happy book about human-non-human relations would be a little bit dishonest. And the other, because we're killing the planet. And then the, the other is that I recognize that the question is not, are non-humans sentient or are they not? The question really should be put back on us and can we hear them or not? And so I, I guess this is a long way of, of coming around to, <coughs> excuse me, yesterday I went to the animal the, the county animal control center because i had to pay my dog fees and show them the rabies tags for the year mm -hmm. and those places are just heartbreaking and you know that i have you know dogs you know that 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 i got at shelters etc and um it's but but that doesn't alter the fact that they're I don't know. It just it just feels to me that the human non-human interactions, whether we're talking about factory farms, whether we're talking about animal shelters, whether we're talking about vivisection, whether we're talking about mass extinction, is just 
okay, I could have just shut up and said this, that there's the great line by, um, Aldo it's messy. Leopold. Let's go with messy. Well, there, there's a great line by Aldo Leopold about basically once you waken up to what, once you wake up to what's happening, you're walking around in a world of wounds. Yeah. And so, um, do you want to talk about that or do you want to talk about the relationship between that and chaplaincy? Because yeah. it seems I, that absolutely. in the midst of, in the midst of horrors, you especially need a chaplain. It is. And we find that people, especially when their eyes have opened to the things that you're talking about, don't have the, uh, they don't have audiences to speak about these things for the reasons that you said. And it's getting better, right? Since ethologists got on board and since we've got, you know, other folks who are saying, you know, here, here's what we know about sentience. Here's what we know about animal emotions. Here's what we understand about, you know, humans aren't the greatest and other animals use tools and they grieve and they have empathy. And, you know, we've got stacks and stacks of evidence now that we're not back in the, you know, Descartes kind of, you know, they're automata and we, you know, we poke them and they just have a reaction. You know, they have no feeling, that kind of thing. So we're getting better. But we still have these areas where we have this bias that to to speak about this compassion in some way makes us weak or we're embarrassed or we're afraid of the response to it. And and that's prevalent. And so some of the work that I do with people is, you know, where do we go and, and, and go get our papers, go get our scientific papers and, you know, be able to have our evidence and be able to speak into different areas to say, no, this human bias and the human supremacy, it isn't, isn't right. It isn't correct. You know, how can we start to work that into the systems that we work in? And, there, and there's a number of different ways to do that, but it's also the idea, I think, and this is where I want to pull in the chaplain, that being able to have some, a little bit of spirituality also with our science by being able to say that some of what we uh, experience in our connection with animals isn't, isn't totally quantifiable, sometimes escapes words. You know, the feeling when you're sitting next to your cat and the cat's breathing and you're breathing and you realize all of a sudden that your breaths have synced up and you're like, oh, wait, am I, am I having this kind of juicy meditation here? What's going on? Right. Or, uh, what we find with people, what they experience when they're walking with a dog and they can get to a place where, you know, their mind gets into that beautiful kind of Buddhist place of no mind or other ways that, you know, religions and spirituality have had ways of talking and indigenous cultures have had ways of talking about human animal relations, which we've gotten rid of. And so part of my work also is to return to those. Let's look back at some of the things that have been written or some of the traditions that happened, some of the practices, what happens when you uh, sit outside and you attune yourself to a habitat you know, when people say to me, nature is my church, and I say, exactly, you know, and why and what's happening and how do you feel? Because that's the flip side, Derek, of the pain and the horrors and the, the heartbreak is, you know, my eyes are open. I see the terrible things that are happening, but I'm also being able to find a place in me where I'm connecting to the beauty that's still there. And when I can connect to the beauty that's still there, it makes me want to work hard to preserve that. So part of 
part of the work that I do with communities is trying to get them to do interspecies practices so they can touch that so that they care. So you said the line, nature is my church. And um, of course, I, I love that and believe that and experience that myself. But in this case, can you define what you mean by church? Yeah, so so here's I'm going to start with a study because I, I just love numbers. Uh, so a recent study by the Fetzer Institute uh, surveyed in the U.S. a wide, wide, wide sample and found that 86 percent of people uh, in the U.S. consider themselves spiritual to some extent. Eighty percent of the people in the U.S. are doing some sort of spiritual practice every week. They are praying, they are uh, reading sacred texts, they're meditating, they're chanting, they're uh, dancing, they're you know doing whatever they are from this kind of this uh, this kind of perspective. When when I use church, um, I could probably say <laughs> I could probably be a little more inclusive and say nature is my church, synagogue, mosque, meditation center, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Right. It's whatever that place that I find my connection to mystery, uh, to something that is greater to myself, to an inner truth, to a higher power, to whatever kind of words that you're using around that. Some people are using the word God. Some people are using the words goddess. Some people are using the words, I don't know, you know, whatever the word we need to not get tied up on the word, but the idea that there's something that's happening, uh, where people are feeling something that they don't have words for. Does that help? So it could be, you know, nature is my meditation center. Nature is the place that I feel good, you know, if we even want to take that out. But I think the reason we hear nature is my church so often is we've had a a very, in the U.S., a a trend of people leaving. uh, I don't want to say the word organized religion because I like to say uh, meditation centers are organized too, so is your yoga center. Uh, but, you know, people are leaving the traditional ways of worship and their traditional affiliations or connections to religious communities. And so I think that they're using that word nature is my church because they're trying to say what they've replaced. And that's that why sense. we hear it so frequently. Yeah, that's, that's great. I used to get people asking me quite often. So, Derek, do you meditate? And I would always say, <coughs> excuse me. I would always say, I live in a forest and I take walks every day. Exactly. <laughs> so, well, but let me let me not put words in your mouth. So, would you consider that meditation or not? Um, <laughs> I don't know if this is uh, if this answer means no or it means super meditation, because I would just say no. I'm taking a walk. Okay. And how do you feel when you take a walk? Um. Well, it depends because like if there's something terrible going on in my life, then, of course, I can, you know, just be running a little hamster wheel like anybody else. And if things aren't, then, uh, you know, then it's like, oh, that's a that's a nice tree. And then, um, you know, oh, look at the look at the slant of light and um, just um Oh, what's that sound? You know, just yeah. being, I, I don't, 
And, and sometimes, of course, I'm sure it's the same for you that sometimes if I'm, if I'm working on a book, then I'm, then I will be, you know, as I'm walking, I'm either ruminating on it or I'm, uh, also, uh, I mean, and this sounds really cosmic and woo woo, but I don't care that I'm asking the trees for some help. It's like, I, I can't, I'm stuck here. Can you, uh, can you, can you help me out with, with the next paragraph? Um, and, and if we read the studies about uh, trees' effects on us, they actually are helping you. So it's not woo-woo at all. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Uh, it's honestly, just our language. But isn't that interesting? Isn't that interesting how quickly we go to when we get to a place where we're talking about something that we don't have language for or that, that feels like it's a little out of the box that, you know, we'll often put some qualifying words around it. Right. And I do it, too. I do it too. You know, I know that we have people who are listening to this podcast and some are going to say, Oh yeah, that happens to me when I go hiking. And others are going to say, I don't know what these people are talking about. And that's fine. You know, we, we, we relate to the world in different ways, but there's a, and I know we've kind of spun off a little bit from our original topic here, but I'll, I'll just, I just want to put a, a pin in for folks that, you know, we sometimes have this idea that meditation means you're sitting somewhere with no thought in your head. And that's actually not what meditation is. So, you know, if we, it, it can be, um, but it can also be a lot of different things. And if we sometimes use the word mindfulness, which is a type of meditation, it just means that what we're trying to do is be in the present moment. We're trying to draw our attention to the things that are going on around us. We're trying to be in connection with where we are in that moment. And so being able to walk through the woods, and say, I'm here and I'm hearing, um, I'm, I'm hearing the woodpecker and I'm seeing the frog dart under the log. And up there, I just caught the eye of the most beautiful deer and I just stopped for a moment or two in that moment. And then I kept going. That, that's what we're talking about when we're talking about spirituality. We're talking about being in the moment. We're being in some sort of connection where, um, we've slipped out of, on page seven, I need to make such and such an edit. I need to go to Target. I need to pick this up. You know, any of that kind of daily rumination. We've, we slip out of that into this other space. So as a, as an animal chaplain, to pull it back to where we started, what I'm trying to do is to get people to make those connections. So instead of saying, you know, nature is my spiritual practice or I love, I love how I feel when I'm in nature. I want people to be more specific. I call it the N-word. Right? The N-word kind of rubs me wrong sometimes, nature, in that it's it's not specific enough where being able to say, you know, the squirrel or the chipmunk or the butterfly or the, you know, or even to be better and named by species if you know, you know, if you know someone's, uh, well, we don't know their name, right? We don't know what they call themselves, but perhaps what we call them on a taxonomic chart. But being, being able to be present to the beings who are in this big thing we call nature can make us care about them more. And we have studies that tell us that too. How we treat animals deeply, deeply affects how we treat habitats and how we treat other humans. And we're more likely, if we're okay with violence towards animals, we're more likely to be, to be okay with violence towards the earth and violence towards people. So this isn't woo-woo at all. This is trying to increase people's empathy. And that that fair? Yeah, 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 absolutely. And I'm thinking about um 
not only naming the species when one can, but also it's so easy to presume that the others are um, monolithic. Mm, and yes. So, I mean, where I live, I see bears every day. Last night I saw six bears, I think. And I'll be right in- over, Derek. I'll be there tomorrow. <laughs> okay, great. <laughs> um, oh, well, I, I probably shouldn't tell you about the, uh, the two babies who live in a tree nearby or two baby bears or, or you will be here. Oh. Um, and the point is that because I see them on a date, okay, I'm going to go back a little bit and, and, and then come back to this, that years ago I interviewed Vine Deloria and he's an American Indian, was an American Indian writer, he's dead now. And he, he taught at a university and he said that his students would go out hiking and they would come back and they would say, oh, I had this great nature experience. And he'd say, well, actually you had an aesthetic experience. Mm. And the difference he was trying to make yeah. is that, you know, if it takes time to get to know another human, to get to know a non-human, to get to know a place, to get to know a dog, a cat, a goldfish, doesn't matter. It takes time to get to know them. And now coming back to the, to the bears that, you know, I've been seeing these bears for years and there's, you know, there's the bear I call the polite bear. There's some bears annoy the crap out of me. Some bears, I mean, they, they all have different personalities and it's so easy to see a flock of crows and then a murder of crows, I guess are called. And to, to just think, oh, it's a bunch of crows, but whether it's a butterfly or, I mean, the, another part of our mechanistic perspective is just believing that, you know, that they're, they're, they're all just replaceable, but they are as individual to themselves as you are to you and me as I am to me. Absolutely. And I, I think we get some of that, Derek, from, you know, we have had a trend of raising our children in zoos with the desire, well, going to zoos, <laughs> with the desire then to go out on safari as they get older. And we collect, we collect sightings of animals. Or we may, if we're a bird watcher, I saw, you know, I have a checklist and I saw this one and I saw this one and I saw this one. And we're not encouraging people to have relationships with animals or to be observant of them in the same ways that we are in what you're talking about. And, you know, there's a there's a positive side to us being able to have those relationships with other species or individuals of other species, to be more correct. Um, and there's a there's also an, another side to that. You know, I live near Connecticut where. Uh, you know, you get bears who are on swing sets because they don't have any land to live in anymore. And the next thing you know, your town comes in to take the bears away, you know, and they're and they're not taking them somewhere nice. So this is really messy and complex. And the more and the more and more and more land that we take away for the things that we humans like to do and claim it as our own, the more we're having conflicts that require us to have some discernment and some work in trying to figure out, you know, what do we do? Cause it's, it's not, it's not simple enough to have, you know, morals of this is right and this is wrong in the treatment of other beings. It, it's just, it's, we, we fail to understand the complexity of it. So that's another thing that I really get involved with, with people. Um, you know, we have something going on in my community right now with a conflict in between a, a gravel company that wants to expand 
and some Blanding's turtles who are endangered. And being able to look at all the different parties in, in that situation and everybody's needs, everybody's desires, and try to guess what the turtles desire is or, or needs are is, uh, is really messy. So being able to have people who are skilled in, um, understanding how to deal with conflicts, which, you know, uh, many of us who are trained in seminaries, you know, understand how, how to pastorally compare companion people. We understand how to deal with conflicts between religions, or people in religions or conflicts, you know, in my case, between humans and other species. So I, I think this is a pretty easy question for both me and you, but maybe not, is like, how do you know what the Blanding's turtles want? And the reason I think that that's pretty easy is they probably want habitat and to be left alone. Yeah, I, I do too. And I, I think that um, I know what they don't want, which is to be smashed by mining trucks. I mean, I can pretty much make that guess. Now, you could, you could throw, you know um, – <laughs> some anthropomorphism at me, you know, and, uh, and we, we could go that route too. But, you know, it's not all about survival, but we have seen over and over and over again that, you know, different beings want to stick around and thrive. How hard is that for us to, to get? So one of the most important moments of my life was, <clears throat> I was trying to write something about uh, I wanted to write something about what it would be like to be to be a river because um, mm. I think we I think we misdefine rivers quite a bit in terms of <clears throat> we think of them just you know, like water flowing through a hose. But the truth is that the rivers writhe like snakes across the landscape and, you know, they flood, they make new channels, they they're very dynamic and. Anyway, so I, I was I was trying to write, what would it be like? And then I thought, boy, this is really silly because I live about 20 yards from a stream. And why would I write what it's like to be a river when I can just go ask the stream? So I went down to ask the stream, what is it like to be you? And the stream answered immediately. And I wrote, I didn't write, I just wrote, I, I hand wrote what the stream said. And it was, you know, way better than anything I've ever written. And the, the point is, one of the reasons this was so important to me is it struck me that one of the most important questions we can ask anyone, and this includes, you know, a partner, this includes a friend, it includes a child, a parent, um, it includes cat, dog, whomever, is what is it like to be you? And then to, to, to really sincerely ask that and, and give them a chance to answer. And I suspect that has something to do with your I, – I suspect this fits in tightly with the whole chaplaincy. It does. And I keep thinking of who is it that wrote what, what it's like to be a bat and, and kicked off that whole thing. Uh, the first paper we ever read in, in any anthrozoological course, I cannot remember his name. But, you know, we do have a lot of curiosity about what it's like to be um, to be another whether it's another human or whether it's another animal or it's a tree or it's a river. And I think you're right that, you know, it, we, we humans love to talk case in point, you and I right here doing our talking, we love to talk. We love words and we love to prize language, you know, as this wonderful thing that, that makes us so 
so fabulous as humans. And, you know, kind of pushing aside that, you know, all beings have, have language. We just can't necessarily understand it. But being able to be in a place of experiencing something with another being that isn't necessarily words is where you get back to spirituality. So, you know, if we were going to do a deep dive into that, we would talk about what is considered non-duality or non-dual states, uh, where when you are uh, engaged with a, another being or um, with a landscape in such a way where you kind of feel that you no longer cease to be you and it ceases to be it or them or he or she, um, that that you are merged in some way. And the hard part about this is that we never notice it to the moment that we become separate again. So you have this beautiful thing where all of a sudden you're like, wow, just a moment ago, I was completely in a zone or I was completely in the flow or I felt like I was part of the forest or part of the river or, you know, I was um, this other being. I was experiencing what it's like to look through their eyes. We, we notice it the moment after. And so a lot of spirituality or meditation or kirtan or in the different practices that we're doing as people who are interspecies spirituality people, uh, which is what I like to term it, interspecies spirituality, is we're trying to get there, Derek. We're trying to get to understand what it's like to be a river or what it's like to be a tree or what the squirrel hanging off that tree feels like or is doing. And we're trying to do it through different ways of knowing. Now, in traditional uh, traditional cultures in in indigenous cultures, there's a lot of uh, of knowledge uh, and speaking of these kind of things, you know, that far predates, you know, my little piece here on your podcast today, uh, traditional environmental knowledge, uh, TEK that we might talk about or different ways of knowing or experiencing the world. And in some of the circles I'm involved in where we're talking about some of the things we can do to mitigate issues in different habitats or in different communities, we're looking back at those and not calling them um, unscientific or woo-woo or, you know, um, not of value. And we're saying, what what can we learn from this? If you look at uh, one beautiful case in point is the uh, sacred tree, uh, sacred churches of the tree forests in Ethiopia. Where, uh, if anyone just, just Google that, um, right in Ethiopian tree churches. And you see these beautiful green lush areas around churches that communities have kept up, um, that are almost like just kind of polka dots on a dry, barren landscape that's been overgrazed, uh, and subject to drought for the reasons that it, you write about, you know, in, in, in your books that I've read. Um, and we find that there's a way if we can, get into that connection that we care a little more and we're willing to work a little more for the areas around us. So I thank you for saying all that. And I think that that's really important and very positive and, and would be a, a sort of good direction to start to wind down on. We've got maybe 10 minutes left. Um, but I, I feel like we have, I feel like I want to go back to death. Yeah. And one of the Let's, reasons. I, go ahead. I agree. I agree. Let's go back to death because we've gotten very philosophical. And I think that also having some more kind of um, practical information and uh, personal experiential information. I mean, there's not a person 
Uh, 70% of the folks in the U.S. are living with an animal. Uh, so it's something that's important for us to talk about, too. And I think, so my mom died three and a half years ago, and it was uh, devastating to me. And I, I, as we were going through the process of her dying, one of the things I realized is that if I lived in that you know i i've known some people who've died and my my grandma died but i didn't have a really close relationship with her i you know i'd see her a couple times a year and i i realized that if i were living in a you know village of 120 people by the time i got to be 60 years old you know i would have seen and known intimately a lot of people who've died and i think we end up with what makes me think about this is you know the and I'm not I'm not saying anything bad about them. The, the 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 people who can't go in with their pets when their pets are being euthanized. And again, I'm not judging them. I'm just saying that we have this very strange attitude toward death where it's not seen as a part of everyday life. And at the same time, we deal it out like in factory farms and vivisection. We deal it out on an industrial scale to some groups. And then to some groups, we can't even think about it, it. It just our relationship to death, I think, is is profoundly messed up. And if anybody should help us understand it, it should be a chaplain. Yeah. And and I think that, Derek, you know, what we're experiencing right now is about 130, 140 years old, what you're talking about, because prior to the Civil War, um, we would have been here here in the United States. That's kind of where they see the difference happening when you start to talk about what, what we call death studies, which, yes, is a thing. Um, but we look at death ways and we look at life ways and we look at how those have changed in different cultures over different times. And uh, for people for whom this is interesting, uh, I have a whole kind of chapter about this in, in Sacred Sendoffs in the book as well about, you know, what happened was death became outsourced. You know, prior to that, our, our grandparents' parents, um, you know, would have had their, you know, the reason that your front door was wide was because it was your coffin door. The reason you had a bay window on the front of the house is because you would be laid at rest in a home for a viewing. You know, there were these different ways where death was part of our life. And then when the Civil War happened, death happened at such a great extent that people became overwhelmed and businesses, <laughs> as we like to do here, you know, in the States specifically, um, businesses came up around, you know, what can we do? Now, first of all, we need to get the soldiers home. So we invent refrigerated rail cars and embalming so we can get soldiers home. So because people need to have a body so that they can do their grieving and their processing. Uh, we do different things where we have all sorts of different people who've taken over a part of the process. We're no longer washing our family members. So, you know, you're absolutely right that we've just become so separate from it. And there is a movement now. There's a, there's a wonderful movement, um, in, you know, trying, trying to bring back the good death and talk about death positivity and get children to understand things about it. You know, if you have kids, start to talk to them about the dead chipmunks they see out there. Uh, when an animal passes in your home, have a frank conversation about it. It's not about, you know, this kind of Rainbow Bridge idea where there's this pet, you know, living there or happy went to the farm. That's where they told me my dog went. 
you know, have a conversation about death and, and what it is in life and, um, you know, how death is a really important part of, of sustaining, of sustaining life. And there is, you know, there's a lot of different movements now for green burial, uh, which are important because we look at embalming fluid and what it does into the earth. Uh, cremation is also really, really not great for the earth. Uh, in terms of the amount of power that it takes and what it shoots out. We have aquamation. We have all sorts of different ways of taking care of bodies now uh, that I go into in the book as well. But I think you're, you're spot on, Derek. And if we can start talking more about it as death as part of living, it, it's part of the process of, of being alive is that we're going to die. Um, and perhaps, you know, it starts the moment after we're born uh, that, you know, it's part of what we're going to experience. So let's talk about it. Let's plan for it. I, I work a lot with people on how do we plan the best worst day? You know, how can we be prepared for it? How can we have some things around the home for when that happens and, and which phone numbers we need to call and which, you know, words we might want to say in that moment, what support we might need. And, um, there is some of that in the book and also, you know, reach out to someone who's an animal chaplain or reach out to someone who's a regular chaplain if you're working with um, you know, human loss. My first, uh, I don't know if this is my very, very first memory, but, but one of my first three or four memories of my entire life is I'm probably four years old and sitting on the stairs and jelly beans. The cat is mm. really, really old. He wasn't my cat. He's my older siblings cat, but jelly beans. The cat is, is lying there and he's still alive, but, the memory is that he was dead within a day or so. And that's, it's a very powerful moment when you first, and I grew up in the country. So, you know, I, I actually did see a fair amount of death too, but it's, uh, I mean, it's your your experience. Yeah. Your experience there, Derek is very, very common. Um, I do a lot of workshops, uh, with different communities or groups or vet schools or, um, you know, different, different type of organizations, for people who want to get more competency in, in working around death and end of life. And one of the exercises I do is go back and let's do a loss line. Let's go back to the first death you remember and do a couple of things. Who was it? What were you told? And how was that loss marked? And that gives us a lot of interesting information because in a lot of cases, um, the body is just kind of taken away from us. We don't memorialize. We don't have a way of, of, of working with it. We don't have a way of kind of transforming or understanding that body may be going through its own transformations. Um, you know, we, we just don't, nothing happens. It's usually just, okay, let's just move on because of the discomfort of working with the child. But if you go through your whole life and you kind of start to chart that out, you'll start to see, you know, how we got to where we are. And also, you know, might you want to go back and memorialize jelly beans or someone else? I do work with people for animals that are 40, 50 years in the past. And we can just do like a, a real nice um, little kind of memory of that animal. We do. I have a, all sorts of different kind of um, activities that we do or ways of, of memorializing. And let's see if we can we can shift that so that your memory is one of remembering a beautiful life that Jellybean had, not that moment. And that doesn't mean we're trying to ignore or bypass death. It means we're trying to understand the entire spectrum of someone's life, not just the final moments that stick in our head. 
so we have just a couple minutes left and um i have like three or four questions so you're gonna have so to i'll speed. be shorter you got you it have to, you have to speed talk okay um first and i'm gonna do all the questions then you can answer them all first one is um how can people find out more about your work how can people uh get the new book uh how can people learn about your chaplaincy trainings and then the last one is is there anything you want to end on that i haven't given you the opportunity to say sure okay so sacredsendoffs.com is the website i will send everybody to uh you can find links for the book there from all sorts of different places it's available wherever you get your books uh but you can find some links there uh you can also find links to meditations links to some tips for working with grief links to some words for using if you have an animal that's passing uh, that might be helpful to say, to bring comfort to you or the people around you. All sorts of different resources there, a 15-minute meditation uh, that you can listen to for loss and grief, and also some super cool meditations for uh, animal thriving. I had a great one of six minutes of a cat purring. It's fabulous for if you're super stressed and you just need to bring your blood pressure down. Uh, cat purr, real loud in good uh, earphones. It's fabulous. So all of that's on there. There's also a link to our animal chaplaincy training program uh, that we run where people can come and train in. Uh, it's You don't have to be religious. It, you don't have to be a specific religion or a specific spiritual belief. We kind of give people some uh, capacity in understanding a lot about the world's religions and philosophies and traditions, but also really practical uh, things that you can do with people to assist them. If you're interested in being an animal chaplain or you just kind of like what we're talking about and you want to learn a little bit of skills to be able to take into your work. We have a lot of people who do that, too. Uh, like I'm working in an animal sanctuary. I want to, you know, mark losses better. Can I just come and do a little bit of the training? So you'll find information on the website for that as well. And is there anything else that we didn't get to talk about? I didn't get to say the word squirrels nearly enough. And so I want to leave with my favorite fact uh, that I that I hold on to when I'm having tough days, uh, looking at the suffering that's happening with animals and with habitats and with humans as well, which is there is a squirrel in the Himalaya that is three feet tall. Isn't that amazing? Three feet tall. Now, luckily, that squirrel is somewhere that we can't all run off or those squirrels of that height, uh, you know, to, to get in their way. But just knowing that there are amazing, um, fabulous other species out in the world, get to know them, learn about them, consider them, consider their needs and their care. And you're doing animal chaplaincy right there. Well, thank you so much for all of that, and thank you for your work in the world, and I would like to thank listeners for listening. My guest today has been Sarah Bowen. This is Derek Jensen for Resistance Radio on the Progressive Radio Network.